Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Dave. And I'm Carrie. Thanks for joining us. Today we are so excited to share a conversation we had with some folks from Decolonize Lutheranism. Uh, we got a chance to chat with them while we were at the youth gathering in Houston, Texas, more than a year ago. More than a year ago. <laughs> but now. Uh, but we had yeah. a great time. We're excited about this conversation. Yeah, you know, and even though they come from a Lutheran Christian perspective, and you're sitting there and you may not be Lutheran, you may not be Christian, and you probably have a perspective. <laughs> uh, but their work is important for everyone to hear and learn about. And no matter what church or community or workplace you inhabit, their work, their message, it's important. How do we care for, make room for, and frankly, get out of the way so that other voices, perspectives, and realities can flourish? I actually got to lead a group of youth through their booth at the youth gathering, and they participated in a bunch of different activities that they had there. And I was really impressed with the different educational resources that they had that allowed people to really mm -hmm. see their privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a group of youth go through and do their bead exercise. So you had these different sections and you put a bead on for every statement you agreed with. So there were statements of a lot of my colleagues are the same gender as I am or the workplace that I have is closed on my religious holidays or different things mm -hmm. that we kind of take for granted that we have as privilege. And it was incredible to see the youth see their privilege before them and understand a little bit better kind of their place in the world mm -hmm. and also the places of other people mm -hmm. in the world. It makes it very tangible yeah. for them. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. what you can do with that privilege, what you can turn that into. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm excited for us all to learn more from their entire team. And with that, welcome to episode 91, Decolonize Lutheranism. Welcome to the Sandbox. We're sitting here in Houston with the Decolonize Lutheranism crowd, a team. And I'm just wondering if you guys could introduce yourself. I'm Elias Reed. I'm from Boston. I'm a transgender, female to male, non-binary type. And I am also uh, have lifelong disabilities. So I represent those communities. My name is Jessica Davis. I'm from Philadelphia. Um, I am a Christian educator and a pastoral counselor. Um, I am a black woman in the ELCA. Um, also stepping into what it means to be a person of color with disability. That's a new title for me. Trying to figure out what that means. And then uh, because most of my work has been with youth, I'm really excited to be at the youth gathering and imparting what we do with Decolonize, with the young folks. Um, my name is uh, Francisco Herrera. Um, I'm also a member of Decolonize. I'm a PhD student in global Christianity and world history. Uh, pardon me, Global Christianity and World Mission History at uh, the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago. Um, I'm also Latin queer, and um, I do a lot of talk about race, about what it means to be a Latino that passes as, as white. And, but my current research interest is on looking at the roots of subversive insurgent Lutherans in the Americas, but especially North America and, and uh, the environs. Who are the people that have been stirring things up mm -hmm. uh, in the name of, of Jesus and uh, in a Lutheran key? Uh, tell us about, about Decolonize, how it got started, um, what kind of some of the main, main work is. 
So the root of decolonized Lutheranism is Charleston and the massacre at Charleston. Mm -hmm. In the advent of Charleston, there were a lot of us who were people of color who were just deeply shaken. Being a person of color in the whitest church in the United States is very hard because of the fact that Dylan Roof, the man who killed all those beautiful people, was himself baptized and confirmed ELCA, but also the senior pastor, Clemente Pickney, and Daniel Simmons, the associate pastor, were graduates of the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary, you know, the ELCA's hands were all over that. And a bunch of us were ready to leave. Fortunately, there were a series of, po- of uh, webcasts that happened in, in the aftermath of that that showed at least that our church was trying to address it. But many of us started talking. Some of us have been friends for years. Other of us kind of became friends as a, con- as a consequence of conversations on Facebook. And we just sort of deepened our relationship to each other, sometimes meeting face-to-face as well as online. And then Old Lutheran, God bless them, had this ad campaign. You know you might be Lutheran if, you know, if you, if, uh, you know, every, mm-hmm. you know, you always bring a knife and a fork with you because there might be a potluck. And that just triggered a response. The first person was a former member of Central Leadership, Paul Bailey. He made a response meme. Paul comes from solid Norwegian Lutheran stock. Davenport, Iowa is where he grew up. And so he, however, at the time had been pastoring at a church in Eagle Pass, Texas, literally right on the border with Mexico. And so he'd been dealing with people who have been Lutheran but are are Mexican for years. And he wrote a meme that said, you know you might be a Lutheran if your vacation Bible school study snack is tostadas. And then there were a whole bunch of us made memes in response, some relating to food, some relating to cultural practices. It just kind of went on from there. And then our social media coordinator, Elle Dowd, who herself had quite a bit of experience with Lutherans across, you know, outside of the U.S., made a meme and then put the hashtag decolonize Lutheranism. And then after that, Um, The conversation went from being one through visual images to text. And at that point, a bunch of us just decided to kind of band together. And, you know, we'd all been in communication on some level. And then next thing you know, we have a website. Next thing you know, we're being invited to talk with people from all over the church. Um, We have a national gathering uh, on October 22nd, 2016. And from that gathering, we had 225 paid registries, of whom 203 came. And at that point, we realized this is the Spirit calling us to do something different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, since then, we have had uh, multiple national gatherings. We had one in Philadelphia last fall. We're having another one in Los Angeles in October. We've had smaller gatherings, too. We had a series of revivals last winter, and our last one was last summer in Austin. We recently had a base community training where attendees learned about what it means to form a community that's built in solidarity in the study of scripture and the sharing of burdens as we find in Latin America in the 70s and 80s especially. And, you know, we have this wonderful booth now at the Youth Gathering. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, but that's, that's kind of the, the rundown. And how did, uh, Jessica and Elias, how, how did you guys get involved with this? So I got involved officially about six months in, but I had started using the hashtag almost immediately and realized um, this gave a name to what it is that I felt called to do. Um, in all of my work, whether it's with young people, whether it's educating adults, whether it's my counseling work, um, my role is to help people understand who they are as children of God in a Lutheran key without regard to 
what they're told their culture is supposed to be. And that's not just about race, that transcends race. There's a culture around gender, there's culture of sexuality, there's culture of ability, and all of those cultures can bring tremendous gifts that we can use to interpret the gospel. Um, and so as soon as I heard decolonized Lutheranism, I realized, oh, this is what I've been trying to do, and here's a group of people who are trying to do it as well. And so I was really excited to get connected. Um, and I really, I say that Decolonize is my church. Hmm. Decolonize is my home congregation, mm -hmm. even though we all live in different cities. Um, mm -hmm. But it's really mm -hmm. powerful to be a part of that. Sounds like Decolonize gave you language for something you already knew. It was already intuitive. It was something you were already doing. And exactly. you just came together on that. Yeah. yeah. As, a, as a person with disabilities um, and being very involved in uh, disability advocacy among people with a great variety of disabilities. I can tell you that one of the things that, that really unchurches us <laughs> at the most, most uh, drastic rate is uh, the way we are so often represented in the lectionary and so seldom represented in the pulpit. Mm -hmm. So there aren't people who understand our experience who are relating the stories about people with very similar experiences and so there's a, an extreme disconnect and you're not reading the stories the church has not been reading the stories with anywhere near the the depth and and fullness of what these narratives are, are trying to convey. There's so many different aspects of social justice, mm -hmm. but disability is, is sort of a common denominator that crosses all other demographics. So if you're trying to approach, uh, bring people to a, an awareness of systemic oppression and the mechanisms of systemic oppression, you would strategize by picking a systemic oppression that is most likely to affect your own circle, your own family or close friends. Mm -hmm. So you have a bit of, of, of a reality there in, in you know, knowing somebody who's disabled and knowing that it, it's absolutely crackers to think that this person is at fault for having a disability. Mm -hmm. If you finally get people to really think about, you know, how, how disability does not reflect God's opinion uh, on your life, um, then it's you're one step closer to understanding, oh, being anything but male is not necessarily a reflection of God's opinion on your life. Or coming from another country is not necessarily an opinion, uh, reflective uh, of God's opinion. But because we, we've been so excluded from those conversations, we don't get to bring that to the table and, 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 get, and, and really talk to people about all the threads of social justice that are written into pretty much every story in the Bible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what we feel is the tragedy of, of our exclusion is y'all not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, why not read the Bible for all it's worth? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
this this movement of decolonize is a young movement within the Lutheran tradition. I mean, it's a couple of years, 2016, mm-hmm. is it right? And it's really just seems to have just caught fire and in all of the best ways. But here you are a couple of years in. Have there been growing pains? Have there been um, things as you've gone that you're like, oh, wow, I wish I would have done that differently or I wish I would have done this other thing um, as the movement has gotten going? You know, what, what have you learned as you've gone? I think the biggest thing that we're really working on now is there was just a burst of, of genuine and I would say righteous anger. Yeah. Um, when you spend literally your entire pastoral career or your entire ministry career having everybody seemingly find excuses not to help you, looking for excuses to completely undermine your credibility at the slightest provocation, whereas your white colleagues never have to deal with anything to that level of scrutiny, let alone your white, cisgender, able-bodied, I mean, just go down the list, right? On some level, there was a, a necessary burst of, of, of genuine frustration and, and anger. And so in recent months, we've been really working on, in addition to making space for that anger, for people to you know vent what they've gone through, but to really have a clear vision for what it is we want the church to be. We certainly had that during our gathering, in our very first gathering. I don't think really any of us knew what to, to expect that day. Um, but the Holy Spirit hit us really hard. And I'll go back and I'll look at the, the trailer that Jason Chestnut made for us, or the or mini documentary about four minutes long, and just sort of marvel at what it was like for that day for all of these people who the church normally treats horribly to really come together and be the ones running the show. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that that is sort of our big you know, learning curve. The other thing is, is that many of our original membership has left. And um, so as a consequence, we're just a different group now. And so how do we go forward where we're a bit more, a little bit, being a little bit more reflective, um, trying to be more attentive about and much more intentional about how intersectionality needs to be the thing if you're not keeping in mind not just the treatment of people of color, but of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and siblings. Um, if you're not keeping in mind the sufferings and the, the trials of people with living with disabilities, if you're not keeping this matrix in mind when you're pushing for inclusion and liberation, um, then you really have to take a step back and ask yourself, are you really as liberative as you say you are? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been a, a, really, a really crucial thing for us. How intersectional are we really? And what's a way that we can present a, con- a, a, a genuinely a positive vision of what God has for all of us as, as people in this church with a mission? I think the biggest struggle that I have noticed is that while people often are very into the idea of decolonized Lutheranism, as long as it's someone else doing the decolonizing work, um, when it gets to them, things get a little bit stickier. And particularly given my background in in pastoral counseling, um, when people want a recipe, okay, how do we decolonize? We recognize our church is all white or all able-bodied or all middle class. What do we do? Mm -hmm. My answer is usually spend a year finding out why and step into that pain. Be honest with yourselves about why, if there are people of color in my community, none of them want to come to my church. There are reasons for that. 
Um, and that is the really, really hard work that I need to ask congregations and synods and churchwide to do. And there's, you know, not unexpected resistance to that. And I think the other big thing is simply gathering resources. You know, every young organization has to figure out how we're going to pay for the things that we do. But I think particularly with an organization that is mostly queer people and people of color, um, we're recognizing the degree to which the expectations of slavery are embedded in our culture and embedded in our church. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is we simply expect people of color and queer people to work for free constantly. And so it's hard convincing folks they need to pay us. And it's hard even, I will say for myself, to step out of that mindset that my work has worth and I need to demand to get paid for it. Um, and that's, that's really been a hurdle, I think, um, for us as individuals and just for our organization. Mm -hmm. So you're talking a little bit earlier about trying to, to reframe a little bit at this point and say a little bit more clearly, here's the, here's the vision that we have for the church. Here's the, here's the way that we want to make some affirmative statements about who we want, who and how we want this, this thing to be. How does Lutheranism play into that? And, and what, what does it actually mean to be Lutheran? <laughs> I think it has a fairly simple answer that being Lutheran is being grounded and guided by theology. Right? We can look at the confessions and we can say, yes, this is who we are. And we make some adjustments over time. You know, the day Luther died, people started arguing about <laughs> the confessions and, and what it all meant and how it applied in their current context. But that we can agree around that. And that's what makes us Lutheran. Mm -hmm. Not food, not music, not skin color, not ability, theology. And we're kind of unique in that as a denomination. And that that's really our central gift. Um, not just to, to the churches in the ELCA, but as in the church, the global church. Mm -hmm. I tend to, because I do have an answer for that. My, um, my big thing is Article 4. Uh, justification mm -hmm. um, that there is no doubt that in Christ by Christ we are saved and there is nothing that we can do nothing that can make us worthy of the love of God Gerhard Ferdi has a really great essay called radical Lutheranism where he basically says look this is a major innovation you know and so if we're gonna if we're gonna die on a hill let's make that the hill we die on because it's this notion that that we don't have to do anything to be worthy of God's love and worthy of salvation is something that is is just truly unbelievable even someone who is so critical of the Christian faith and he's not even a Christian anymore really um, George Tink Tinker um, who's also a Lutheran pastor and theologian he even says that article 4 of the Augsburg Confession is one of the most revolutionary pieces of theology written in the history of religious thought. And even if somebody who has such a critical perspective of European culture and what it has done to native peoples, indigenous peoples all over the world, even if he can say that Article 4 is something worth holding on to, I think that's something that we as a, mm -hmm. as a denomination and as those who claim this, this mantle of theological tradition, I think we can put a fair amount of stress there as well. But when I think about, you know, Article 4, it, you know, you talk about Article 4, and of course that's uh, based on, on the scriptures, and you're, you're calling to go back to basics? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And we often say, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the new Reformation. And my response is usually, well, you know, Lutherans have a Reformation every 25 years or so, so fine. But we're actually not doing anything new. Yeah. All we're doing is we're reminding the church what we believe, and we're calling ourselves to put what we believe into practice. But we're not creating anything new. Yeah. And living out of the 
Protestant tradition of, of protesting the things that are not what they ought to be. Exactly. As much as I, 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 I also, coming from a disability perspective, really appreciate Article 4 on justification. Not only that there's nothing that we have to do, um, that there's nothing actually that we can do to merit justification. However, Luther spoke about the necessity of law and gospel, and you can't really appreciate the gospel in the way that Luther did until you are um, until you really hear the law, which explains you know really the basic truths about how we're in the mess that we're in, and you know putting ourselves up against the Ten Commandments and and how <clears throat> and Luther's explanation of the Ten Commandments in the the large catechism, which is actually really a hoot to read if you actually open up the the book of concord and read it so one thing that you know my pastor really helped me um when i was having a very difficult time with my central nervous system uh crashing and i would stop breathing and 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 uh um, basically, and, and go into convulsions, and and I was really at a point in my life that there really, literally, was nothing I could do, and it was, and and it was causing me a great deal of anxiety, and 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 just really driving me nuts, um, because I always wanted to do. I always wanted to contribute, mm -hmm. and I and I was so frustrated that I felt that I couldn't contribute at that time. So um, this was a series of life-changing conversations where he got me to realize, you know, that that it's okay if there's nothing that that I can do. And in fact, it, when it really broke through, I was in an ambulance mm. uh, after one of those episodes at the end of a church service. And, and I just remember um, kind of, you know, prayerfully, okay, God, uh, what is your will for me? And really strongly feeling God's response, my will for you is to understand just how much you are loved. Um, but in parentheses, not just you, <laughs> but every single person and every single living creature and the earth itself is so beloved by God. So, you know, you're sacred. You're sacred. You're sacred. You're sacred. You're sacred, and you're sacred. Um, and and um, what Luther was was, you know, the reason the gospel really hit Luther, and and he found it such a liberation is that that he was raised on the law, in such a way that that. You know, for for Luther, hell wasn't fire and brimstone and all all of that. Hell was God saying, "Enough! You are not welcome in my presence. I don't want to see you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Get out!" And that was Luther's idea of hell, and feeling that he had to somehow measure up 
to to for God to tolerate his, his presence um, in his life or the life to come. And so when we miss the truth about ourselves and how we constantly violate the sacredness of the people and the things around us, then we can't really understand the gospel in the way that Luther did. I've heard three different things that you've said as far as, you know, decolonizing what you're what you're about right now and, and one is to kind of shake people by the shoulders and say you need to pay attention see that your blind spots one is to allow those who have been wounded so deeply to grieve and to, and to express their pain and the other is to build something up and and those are three um giant tasks um and i'm wondering how how you're living into that right now i think how i lean into it both as an educator and a, a counselor is finding growing edges for individuals and communities okay. and letting them know that it really is okay to work on a couple at a time. I think that as Lutherans and as Christians, we are all called to do harm reduction. So there are places where we are engaging in behaviors or we are using our money to support behaviors that are actively killing people. We got to work on that right now, today. Yeah. But we also can be a little bit gentle with ourselves and say, look, you know, I have been brought up to participate in these hundreds of oppressions. And if I stay in that spot of, oh, my God, I have to figure out how to stop participating in these hundreds of oppressions, you're not going to do any work. But what you can do is look at the community that you're in and who am I harming the most right now? And you can focus on that and find that growing edge and find people that will work with your community on that growing edge. Um, and I think that makes it a little bit more digestible for the people we're working with. And then also for me thinking, you know, oh, we have to reform the ELCA. No, God is reforming the ELCA. God's got it. God is not bearing any of the anxieties that I'm bearing. Um, and remembering that if I am participating in the work of God, that the Holy Spirit will tell me where I need to go, will tell me what I need to do, um, and that I can rest in that. And that if I am bringing an anxious energy into a community, I'm not actually doing the work of the divine. So I need to do the work myself. Um, and then I can be a non-anxious presence in the midst of, you know, warranted anxiety. We cause harm to one another. and Most of us don't want to. And we're right to be anxious about that. But also we need to understand that if the anxiety is keeping us from the work, then we need to ratchet it back a little bit and let God be present. Um, for me, there are kind of two things. So kind of the, the sort of, in some respects, the funnest for me and the easiest is I like to say that I, I do as much as I can to talk about the hidden transcripts of Lutheranism. Hidden transcripts is this concept that come up by a guy named David C. Scott he has a book called The Weapons of the Week where he talks about how there are public transcripts for how a society functions, and then there are hidden transcripts. So the public transcript is, well, we have a very safe neighborhood, and our neighbors get along really well, and you know there's very, very high employment here, and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's the public transcript. The hidden transcript is, yes, it's a very safe neighborhood because they've effectively been able to keep people of color out of here because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And the neighborhoods are happy because the man who owns the neighborhood association also employs one-fourth of the people who live here. 
and they're afraid to protest the racism they see or the this that they see because they're afraid of losing their jobs. Mm -hmm. And his company owns the bank too, so they're afraid of losing their houses, right? So that's mm -hmm. so talking about the hidden transcripts of Lutheranism. Right. My favorite example of late has been uh, a guy named, you guys hear the name Bishop Medardo Gomez. He is the Bishop of the Lutheran Synod of El Salvador. He was installed in 1986. Um, back then, their supports were from the Missouri Synod. Uh, those of you who don't know, El Salvador also had a horrible civil war during the 70s and 80s. Um, and uh, there were death squads that were killing his pastors. And so he went to the Missouri Synod, that was the, his sort of parent church, and said, look, I need to ordain women to be pastors. And they said, okay, well, you can do that, but we'll, we'll yank your funding. And he just basically says, okay, ciao, see you later, right? And so he started ordaining women. And um, a few years ago, he also realized, he just seeing the struggles of the LGBTQ community globally, he has been an active voice for the ordination of, of LGBTQ people in El Salvador to the Word and Sacrament Ministry. But do we hear about him? Right. This man has been doing this work in El Salvador for 30, more than 30 years, but we don't hear about him. Mm -hmm. So he's a hidden transcript, transcript of Lutheranism. The other thing that I personally try to do is do everything that I can to make intersectional space possible. Um, we just had a base community training back in April of this last year. Um, we've been talking about doing it for a year. And then I sat and had a conversation, I, she will remain nameless, but a very beloved friend of mine who's kind of my big sister in the ELCA, who's from India. And she had a very pointed question for me. So with decolonized Lutheranism, who are the people you're serving? And I said, white people. I didn't even, didn't even blink. And she goes, good, I'm glad you see that. What do you need to be doing to serve the people you need to be serving? Hmm. So we kind of sat on that for a while, and we, by this time, it was, we had our gathering in, in Philadelphia, and that's kind of when it hit me. It was like we had this base community training coming up that was being co-taught by Alexia Salvatierra, who's an ELCA pastor, and uh, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Conde Frazier, who is currently the dean at Esperanza College in Philadelphia. And so they came and they taught us to do what it means to have a base community in the base community model of South America. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, but I realized that for us to really be focusing on the intersectional communities, the people who are not seen as leaders that are not seen as fully human, that we needed to do everything we could economically to make it possible to attend. So fortunately, we were very blessed that we got a uh, grant from an organization called the Catherine Manley Gaylord Foundation for $10,000, and it allowed us to provide full scholarships to every person of color, every trans and non-binary attendee, and all people with disabilities who qualified for certain public benefits. And we had 58 people come from all over the country. 35 of them were people of color. We had, I think, eight or nine trans and non-binary folks that were there as well. And there were a decent number, I think there were, was it like, like, like 12 or 13 cis people, but of the cisgender folks that came, half of them were queer. So this environment was, I mean, it's a church. Mm -hmm. What would you do if you had a congregation where one-sixth of your membership was trans and non-binary? Mm. What would you do if you had a congregation where well over half were people of color? Um, 
And it was just this wonderful time where, and Alexia and Elizabeth, what they taught us was it's kind of hard to build a community on the gospel if what you build with is anger. And the, the weekend was a time for a great healing for all of us, mm-hmm. um, a time to cast a vision forward, and, and most importantly, just to kind of smother each other in love for a day and a half. Yeah. It, was really, it, was, it was really beautiful. Yeah. Um, but this is, a, this is something that the church needs. Um, and especially in the ELCA, we need to know that there are other voices. And everybody else, we all know that Lutheranism, it's a global phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, we, so I really do my best to, to, to share these stories with people, to let them know about these right. folks, as well as to work with colleagues as best as I can to actually create those spaces like we have in our national gatherings, like we had in the base community training, so folks can see what happens when we see this full panoply of diversity that normally is completely invisible. And I just want to um, really sort of enforce that and make sure that folks know, um, folks who have quite a bit of privilege in the church know how desperately those of us on the margins just want to be able to be Lutheran and, right? Lutheran and black, Lutheran and Latinx, Lutheran and trans, Lutheran and disabled, and even taking it to the next step of Lutheran because, mm-hmm. right? And not mm-hmm. in spite of. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's, it's a soul hunger, and there's a phenomenon that happens when people on the margins see each other at Lutheran events, and we look each other in the eye and we go, ELCA, am I right? And there is so much history behind that, and so much pain behind that, mm-hmm. and so much joy in being Lutheran behind that, and this desperation to not have to pretend to be something we're not, to be able to live out our faiths and be authentically whoever it is that we are. And all of that gets communicated in a head nod and a shrug. <laughs> and they're like, well, ELCA, what are you going to do? But I want folks to hear that it's, mm-hmm. it's a desperation. Um, mm-hmm. And it comes from a place of love. But we need to be heard. We need to find a space where we're going to be heard or we're going to continue leaving the church. And, and, all, and all the, the, the white cis straight folks aren't happy with their church, too. Yeah. I mean, right. let's be honest. They yeah. know that there is something missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They know when they don't have people of color in their communities. They know when they don't have folks that are LGBTQ in their communities that are comfortable with being out about it. Mm-hmm. They know when they have members of the community that are disabled that aren't being treated with respect and they see how they're being treated week after week after week and do nothing. And it, it's, um, it's really disheartening how prevalent that is. It was yeah. funny. Decolonize actually applied for six uh, action grants, or probably eight action grants from Thrivent through different people. We applied for eight, expecting to get four. We got two. And the excuse that we were given for not qualifying was that we tried to change church policy, which is hilarious because we're actually not advocating for the actual change of church policy. There are some things we'd like to see different, but it would be really great if the church actually follows the policy that it currently has. Right. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself would be a significant improvement. We see that. We're having to live it. And we also want to make sure we're part of organizations don't actively support you know, investment companies that take money from companies who are currently building facilities used to house immigrant children separated from their families. Mm-hmm. Thrivent is engaged in a company, has money in a company that does that. Um, 
as well as actively supporting the oppression of LGBTQ people. That, you know, that is who we are. Lutherans have to acknowledge who we are before we can do anything differently. And part of that is acknowledging where our money comes from and how our money is used and stored. And lots of progressive Lutherans are happy to say, yeah, but we accept LGBTQ people. Well, I think at as current rate, not quite 9% of all congregations in the United States have openly embraced the LGBTQ community that have become reconciled, uh, reconciled in Christ. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, and, I mean, understand it, they, the, the organizations reconciling works in extraordinary Lutheran ministries. They understand this is a slow process, but that's really, I mean, do you imagine the, what the outcry would be? Um, if there was something comparable, like only 9% of our churches or 8% of our churches would openly admit that they support African-Americans. I mean, it, it's, it's just, there's a disconnect there. Right. That's a big deal. I mean, that, that is one of the primary ways that we indicate our actual support, our actual value of something, or our lack of support or lack of value, depending on, on how that money is or isn't spent. Uh, money and time and energy, and, and that's an indicator of... You know what we care about really at the end of the day unfortunately um unfortunately those things aren't in a lot of cases where they ought to be We're, we are now uh talking to you in the context of being at the the gathering uh, it's a national event for young people and uh across the lutheran church and you have a presence there and as do we and i'm just wondering what are you doing what are you encountering what are you sharing what are you learning from the kids all of that so it's been great so far. We've only been through one day of the official gathering. Um, mile and table, we're meeting for the last few days. Um, and so for those that aren't familiar, those are separate pre-gathering events um, for folks that identify as disabled or people of color. And so that in and of itself sort of is representative of the ELCA. We know we need to do better by these communities. We know that these communities need time to themselves to mourn, to heal, to celebrate. But we also go about it in ways that are really, really problematic. We need our own space, but it's, we notice that those spaces are not super accessible to people with disabilities when we've said that this is the disability pre-gathering. Mm-hmm. We do it in ways where it's primarily white folks making all the decisions. We do it in ways where the gathering itself is super expensive. And so most of the folks who probably most deserve to attend the gathering simply can't afford to go. Um, and the gathering is a very, very white space. That's just a fact. You know, white people in the ELCA, white people in America are the people with the money. And so that's who shows up at the gathering. That being said, all of those challenges being acknowledged, it's still a really positive experience. There are so many youth for whom their encounter at our booth is the first time they've been challenged to think about the fact that, oh, there are no people of color in my church, and yet my church is in an area with lots of people of color. Maybe we're doing something to keep them away. Um, it might be the first time they've even thought about, oh, in order to get, get up to the altar in my church, you have to go up seven steps. No wonder there's no people with you know, visible mobility challenges in my church. We've never thought about it. Even in this first day, we've had experiences with folks that came out to their congregation while they were doing the activities that we were engaged in. Because we you know, make folks think about gender, orientation, ability. We've had folks this first day realize that they were trans because no one had said the word trans to them before. And suddenly they're at our booth and are saying, oh, this, this is me. This is who I am. And 
then there's people like me in scripture, but also I'm so damn mad that nobody in my church ever told me that there are people like mm -hmm. me in the world and in the Bible. Mm. So we get to have these incredibly powerful experiences with young folks. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. But um, every time I'm at the youth gathering, I am reminded that we have a lot of work to do. As Francisco mentioned at one point in our conversation, people notice when something or someone is missing in their faith community. As we look around our congregations, if we see a whole lot of other people who are more similar to us than not, we know that something is not quite right. The work of Decolonize is important for many reasons, but I think one of the most significant is reminding the church of who is missing and the gifts that they can bring. Elias, Jessica, and Francisco all bring unique gifts to the church. They all brought unique perspectives to our conversation, perspectives that I certainly would have missed if not for their voices. But if our faith communities are to be places of healing and of growth together, then we need to do better to provide space for other voices. We need to hear from those who have been left out and cast aside. It's important to step aside and let others share, speak, and lead whose voices have been silenced and marginalized, to hear the ways God has been working in their lives and in their communities. We have a lot to learn and a lot of work to do. So what step can you take today? In your sphere of influence, how can you begin to notice who is missing from your neighborhood, your place of work, or your faith community? And how might you be part of the way that faith communities can provide a space for healing and hearing the full expression of God in the world? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And special thanks to Elias, Jessica, and Francisco from Decolonize for taking some time to talk with us. If you want to stay up to date with all things going on in the Sandbox, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time. We'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.